from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, WeWork pulls meat from the office menu, jump-starting solutions to plastic pollution in Asia, a sailing trip into the Pacific Gyre, and what it takes to green a summer music festival. We're with the band this week on 350. It's July 20th, 2018. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me, as always, from Midland, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello there. I hate to, I hesitate to uh, correct you, but it's Midland Park. I'm in a lovely park. <laughs> Midland well, Park, New Jersey. Midland um, Park. Well, I'll, is, yes. there a mid, is there a Midland? I, there probably is a Midland um, My apologies but... to you and the good people of Midland Park, and uh, pardon the intrusion for you people if you're if you exist somewhere in Midland. Yes. Anyway, Midland Park, New Jersey. Midland Park. Midland Park. Never to yes. make that mistake. Almost again. a year older, too, by the way. You? Yep. You have a birthday coming up? I have a birthday coming up. Oh, I don't even know when your birthday is. When is it? It is on Saturday. It's tomorrow. Tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. so yeah, birthday I week. share a birthday with Ernest Hemingway. Gosh, I mean, I don't even remember what 41 is like, but that's... A... <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I was just, just trying to be helpful. Um, well, yeah. uh, uh, any plans? What do you got? Sadly, I will be with my chorus all day on Saturday at a retreat. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not. It's fun for me to be with my chorus, but not necessarily fun for me to be with my chorus all day on my birthday. <laughs> so. Uh, and yeah. for and for those who don't know about your chorus, why don't you give us a little rendition? Oh boy, so crazy! Oh, ha ha ha! Well, I sing a harmony part, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that to you all. But uh, I am with an acapella chorus, four part, women's only. It's part of the Sweet Adeline organization, and we are actually internationally ranked, um, and therefore, the need for summer retreats. I know you you competed uh, all over the U.S. and outside as well. Actually, I've never competed outside they sometimes have the contest in uh, places like Canada but they haven't done that in a while uh, last time was Vegas and the next international competition is in St. Louis in October well uh, in advance uh, happy birthday thank you very much and let's go into the birthday week in review Let's start off talking meat. Why not? Um, <laughs> Why and, not? And specifically, uh, just this interesting story we ran this week about WeWork. Of course, they're the they're the uh, rent a space uh, co working uh, facility that's become quite the phenomenon. And of course, they've got a bunch of other businesses behind that. So they're just a sort of the new Uber of real estate in some ways. They are now doing something interesting with meat or perhaps the lack thereof. Yeah. So they've actually uh, made, made the decision to not serve any meat at any WeWork events. So that's, you know, that's kind of a, I think a nice ambitious stand, and especially since they probably have a lot of events at their, their spaces. But 
even more notable for me, um, they're not going to reimburse for, for employee meals that include meat, which kind of, I'm sure, might be a little bit controversial. So basically, they're saying to you, you want to buy lunch uh, on, a, on, a, on a business reason, um, don't, don't be eating the meat. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think, I actually haven't seen, I've seen a commitment like this from any other company. Have you, Joel? No, I haven't. And, and I think it's interesting to point out that, you know, there's lots of reasons to uh, ban meat. One is health. Uh, one is ethics. Um, and one is environmental or specifically climate change. And, and what's interesting about the WeWork one is that they sent out an email uh, with its decision and about this. And they said the move was driven by environmental considerations and specifically the, the desire to reduce the water CO2 emissions um, that go into about 15 million animals that would have been consumed in the WeWork workplace. Uh, and, and as you said, this, this isn't just in the workplace, this goes to uh, meals purchased by employees uh, and charged to company expenses. So uh, it, it just, it's just a really interesting uh, time and space to be looking at that. And you know, part of a growing movement to look at the climate impact of agriculture. Um, I've had several people tell me, you know, we could ban cars and have 100% of, of energy coming from renewable sources, and we still wouldn't come close to meeting the, parent, the Paris Agreement goals unless we take on ag, since that is uh, uh, one of the biggest sources of, uh, of, of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so a stat in an uh, article from uh, I recently read uh, that's from Jason Clay at the World Wildlife Fund. He said that overall, agriculture generates more emissions than all of the airplanes, cars, ships, and other vehicles combined. That's something. So taking on meat in the workplace is uh, something to consider. Yeah, and uh, you know, to to draw the contrast with the WeWork commitment, uh, we see other. I've seen a bunch of other organizations embracing the alternatives as opposed to you know banning the the meat. Um, you see people like uh, IKEA and I think Tesco really investing in the meat alternatives, um, the the vegetarian options, the, in some cases vegan options to to these proteins. And um, I, I look forward to seeing the innovation. Um, increase and, and the embrace of, of those alternatives. Uh, I think I was reading somewhere that, you know, as you look at what those, if you think about Impossible Burger and all of these, you know, all of these other organizations that have burger alternatives, many of them obviously are going after ground beef, right? So that's a big, um, big supply that they hope to disrupt. Um, I, you know, and if you address that and, you know, I don't, frankly, and I hate to say it, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but I occasionally love a really well-prepared steak. And I, I, I find it difficult to believe that individuals are going to give up, some individuals are going to give up meat entirely. Um, but if you address certain certain parts of the, of the chain, if you will, at least it'll start to make a positive impact. Yeah, but it's a generational change. This is not something that's going to happen in, in the next uh, five years. This is something that's going to happen in the next 25 years in terms of uh, shifting patterns um, uh, around meat consumption, and of course, all this is happening at a time when when meat consumption is skyrocketing in in China and in uh, other developing economies. Uh, so, uh, at minimum, we've got to 
uh, tap the brakes and find alternatives just to stay even or to slow the rate of growth. So this is, uh, I think, something we're going to be hearing about. And I, and I do believe that, that yes, starting off with ground beef and, and soon ground chicken and some other things, but I think they're going to start to get more towards the steak, whether it'll meet your fine palate, Heather, for uh, a good steak now and then, um, TBD. Uh, but again, some people will uh, come into the, into the meat market, if you will, uh, never having tasted a real steak or a traditional steak, and we'll start mm-hmm. to, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, be weaned on these uh, alternatives, and it, it, it may become the new normal. There's also uh, Happy Mediums, by the way. Uh, there's a number of burgers made from beef, but with a certain percentage, 20 25% mm-hmm. of mushrooms, mm-hmm. and that, that also are supposed to have a, sort of the best of both worlds. So there's a lot of ways to uh, to tackle this and i think yeah. it's interesting but while we're yeah. talking innovation let's move to a story that you wrote heather about apple and their new clean energy fund related to china yeah we've been following apple obviously for uh, a number of years and what they've been doing on the 100 percent renewables commitment that they've made the thing that for me is just remains so intriguing and so um uh, important, right, is the, is their efforts to help their supply chain get there too. And they've had a program in place for, I guess it's about three years now, where they, they've been sort of, um, you know, help, help being very helpful to, to certain partners, you know, help them sort of put their influence in policy, um, kind of guided them towards similar commitments. And they've, they've had a number of, of uh, companies make commitments, including J-Ball, which is a huge um, a huge component company, but now what they're doing is they're saying, "Okay, um, this is this has been working. Now we're going to put more money in it." Um, but they're not necessarily they're not putting up all the money themselves. Um, they are putting up a total of three hundred million over the next couple years. I think it was uh, four years, um, and it, they're they're having some of their su- suppliers put money in too. So they're basically saying, "Help us invest in these in these in these uh, installations." solar, um, wind, and uh, you're going to get a piece of that. So um, they've got 10 partners lined up so far. They've engaged with a subsidiary of Deutsche Bank to help manage this fund, and um, they're going to, to put skin in the game, essentially. So this is a new fund uh, that, that they're hoping to help inspire the China market. China's, the policies have been sort of nascent, um, but they're starting to accelerate. I have a session I'm developing at Verge uh, in October, our Verge conference that is focused on international developments. And um, Apple has been absolutely instrumental in inspiring innovation in the Chinese market. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit about investing in China and Asia on on, uh, recycling in a little bit. But just to put this in context, $300 million is a considerable chunk of change. uh, And kudos to Apple for doing this. should be noted that uh, the last report I saw they had two, uh, almost $300 billion cash on hand. Uh, so this is, that's, uh, you know, one one-thousandths, I guess, of, of, of what they're sitting on. So, and they plan to disperse that in a number of different ways. But, uh, you know, this is, this is a way that a lot of companies that are sitting on hordes of cash, uh, you know, can be thinking about how to deploy it in a way that, uh, addresses not just its operations, but some some global challenges, particularly in parts of the world that need it and are that are vital to their own supply chains. 
So while we're talking about climate, as we seem to keep doing, uh, let's move over to another story that we want to talk about that we ran this week about um, the voluntary climate disclosures um, that come out of the uh, TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Richard Mahoney, who runs Mahoney Partners as a communications firm, um, wrote a really thoughtful piece about... uh, talking about the fact that the disclosures that were hoped for aren't necessarily happening at the scale that was intended. So this is a the TCFD is a set of recommendations uh, backed by the G20 ministers and uh, Mike Bloomberg and others, United Nations, uh, who, he's the United Nations Special Envoy for Climate Action, among so many other things. Uh, and it offered guidance for publicly traded companies on how to report risks and opportunities arising from climate change. And um, it's a voluntary disclosure. And uh, there was starting to be some pressures from investors to report. But what Mahoney's saying is that they're not happening fast enough. And do we need regulators to step in and make this voluntary disclosure mandatory? Yeah. What do you think? (laughs) So yeah, this has been what I've been wondering since I I really started focusing on this um, particular issue. And I've been kind of asking that question in the back of my mind myself. Um, I don't personally think, I mean, maybe it's going to happen in some of the international markets. Um, There has been some discussion of potentially making it mandatory, but I just, with the current um, sort of mindset around regulatory change in the United States, I just don't see it happening. I feel like, I, I totally agree with him that it's not happening quickly enough. You've seen you know, you can count on on one hand, actually, at least in my head, the the, the organizations that have actually moved to do this. You know, you, I think we've cited JetBlue a number of times, and there's there's other organizations studying this sort of concept of of um, better integrated reporting. It comes down to that, right? It's it's more like the blended climate risk uh, discussions within the, the the broader financial disclosures that that companies make and. So far, you know, there's like little baby steps, not even baby steps, like baby tiptoe steps towards this. Um, you know, I guess you mentioned the investors, and, and I suppose if, uh, you know, you have more organizations pulling money, right, out of, out of funds. I mean, we, we, we had Ireland, for example, last, last week. It was kind of a divestment um, declaration, but they're going to pull out of all fossil fuels companies, and and maybe that's that's sort of a separate issue. But if you have some of these institutional investors that actually, you know, say, well, you know what, you're not you're not disclosing enough about it for us. Yeah, we're going to take your money out. I mean, if you have that start to happen, then maybe they'll. I don't see the uh, the the consequences yet, and maybe that's why uh, fewer pe- companies than we've hoped for have have actually started to do this. I agree with you that we don't need regulations here, and, I, and the chances of them happening certainly in in the U.S. are are slim to none. Uh, I do think this is going to happen uh, over time. I just it's, I think this is just a slower build. The bigger challenge is even with the TCFD, and we're going to talk about this at our Green Biz Conference next February in Phoenix. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on this. Is that there's still a, a mismatch between companies reporting their climate risks and doing it in a way that investors need 
to un fully understand risk-based decisions. Um, and so the TCFD takes you part of the way there, doesn't fully do that. And, and so what's going to be interesting is what will the pressures be from investors, not just to hew to the TCFD recommendations, but actually to start reporting very specifically and starting to press companies to disclose uh, very specific risks in a way that they need to assess what the you know, what kinds of uh, buy sell hold decisions they want to make on a, on a particular company, and and that's where, that's where I think this is going to go. And I think you know you are going to see that happen on a, a sector basis, like industry by industry. So people are going to put more. Okay, here's what this means in our context. The banking industry has started to move towards that. They actually just um, had a second set of methodology that they. Uh, released this week around that. There's, I think, 16 banks involved in um, in sort of making suggestions about how to how to go about putting this into practice, right? So uh, I do think you'll see that on a sector by sector basis, and um, uh, there's a there's some good sites that are popping up to help with this. And you know, I, I always want things to happen more quickly than <laughs> they do, and I, I think it goes back to when, when you've been doing things in a certain way for years and years and years and years, it does take years and years and years to actually change things. So uh, I suppose patience is, is a virtue, right? I guess we have to be patient. Joel, both you and I have been following the money this week. <laughs> I wrote about the Apple Clean Energy Fund. Uh, you, have, you wrote about a new fund that closed loop partners, um, a new venture that they're starting in Asia, Circulate Capital. So can you give us the lowdown and the rundown on what that's about? Yes. Uh, so Closed Loop Fund is an organization company that was formed in 2014 by, uh, funded by a bunch of about 10 big uh, consumer packaged goods companies, mostly, to help develop the infrastructure for recycling in the United States in order to produce more recycled content that these and other companies can put back into their into their supply chains. Uh, they just they wanted to use. They're committed to using more and more recycled material. They just couldn't get enough, and it's been going, been going along pretty well. But as they got into this, they realized that so much of the challenge of both the raw material collection, the recycled material collection, and the supply chains happens in Asia, particularly in South and Southeast Asia, countries like China, the Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, and of course, India as well, where manufacturing plants are for so many consumer packaged goods companies. So this week, Closed Loop Partners announced a spinoff, a new venture called Circulate Capital, to invest in companies, innovations, and projects that not only uh, put more recycled material back into the uh, supply chain in Asia, but also prevent marine plastic waste, ocean plastics, in other words. So it's a really interesting project. They've committed $150 million. It's a fairly small amount given the scale of what needs to be done. There was uh, some research that said we need $5 billion a year just in Asia to solve the solve the problem, so 150 million dollars is is only going to you know jumpstart a, a few things. But the idea is that this can start to show what's possible and create some projects that can then become replicable. I like the fact that this is actually a venture based in Asia as well. I think that's important because 
you know, we, as Americans, we tend to not understand necessarily the cultural implications around how things happen in other countries. And um, I, I was, I was intrigued to learn, um, Joel, that the systems are very different. They're more, far more informal in Asia, in, in many of the countries there. And so that needs to be a consideration when you're thinking about what um, ventures and initiatives to to invest in. So they're going to Asia in order to figure that out, and um, I think that's incredibly important. Yeah, you think about what's going on. You know, in the U.S., typical city, they've got recycling bins you put out on your curb, or it goes somewhere and and. And then it gets picked up and goes to typically a, a MRF, a municipal recycling facility, where it gets sorted and recycled stuff gets taken out and put back into some pr- form of production. Um, none of that exists. Uh, you've got the, the waste pickers, uh, which is called the informal economy. Basically, small entre- small-time entrepreneurs, individuals or families or groups of people who are collecting from trash heaps, landfills, and other things and, and, and pulling out the, the valuable materials, not just recyclables, but sometimes reusable things. And, and, and so when you're creating an infrastructure, you need to make sure that they're involved. Uh, if you run roughshod over them and create something that goes around them, you're putting potentially millions of people out of work. And, and I think that's one of the many challenges. And so how do you take what exists and, uh, and start to, uh, as you said, formalize it a little bit um, and and that's that's just one piece of it. So I asked Rob Kaplan, the the CEO of Circulate Capital, one of the, formerly the managing director until this week of the of the closed loop fund, to offer his perspective on the rise of concern about plastic plastic waste, why this has become an issue, and then uh, we'll get to a little bit about what some of the challenges he's facing. So here's Rob Kaplan. I've never seen an environmental issue get legs like this at this rate in my short career. I think there's a few things driving it. Um, One is that as far as environmental issues go, you have a few different powerful drivers. You have uh, amazing images and video that have been now deployed through social media and in documentaries um, that have really ignited passion from everybody uh, on everybody's Facebook page, you know, all the way to Buckingham Palace and what they've committed to. So it's changed the the awareness of the issue has changed, and that's caused consumer engagement and consumer activism, um, which you don't see often in an environmental topic like climate change, for example. And it's uh, governments are paying attention too. Uh, so the awareness of the problem has skyrocketed, but awareness of the solutions has lagged. And that's really why we feel like it's important to accelerate and lean in on this topic as quickly as possible, because we need to start investing in those solutions. So part of the rationale for a closed loop fund, you know, 1.0, was that companies were needing more recycled content to put into the the front end on their supply chains, uh, and needed to bolster municipal recycling to make that happen. Is there some an analog to that uh, in Asia, or mm-hmm. is it simply a matter of really starting with what, in, a, in effect, is a massive litter problem? Uh, it's both and, no question about it. Um, most of the companies that are interested in using recycled content in the U.S. have global commitments to using recycled content. And the ability to do that in a place like Indonesia or India is uh, much, is, is very challenging. And there's just aren't the supply, there isn't the collection, the sorting, the processing needed to make that happen. 
and uh, it's a one of one of the reasons why this is getting such legs is that by investing in the waste and recycling infrastructure, you're getting a lot of benefit. You're getting solutions to ocean plastic and the litter side on the impact piece, but then you're also getting uh, increased supply of recycled resin and other materials for your supply chain. So, Joel, you mentioned some of the challenges of, of getting this to happen, um, and you know we heard about the the, the real money <laughs> that's needed. So, where do we go next? What what how do we address some of these things? Where where can they make an impact first? Well, money is just part of this. I mean, creating this system type of system and jumpstarting the recycling infrastructure in Asia uh, and it depend in every country is a big challenge. And, and it's not just money. It's not just the informal economy. There's a lot of other kinds of issues that make this far riskier than you would expect. So here's Rob Kaplan again talking about some of those challenges. The reality of investing in emerging markets is a lot more complex, right? You have to deal with um, labor issues. You have to deal with corruption issues in a different way. So we will have a lot of complexity to manage on the collection side of the system. When you compare it to the U.S., investing or providing a loan to a municipality is probably one of the safest things you can do to support collection. On the flip side, in, a, in some of these markets, it's one of the more risky things you can do. The, these populations, collection is currently managed by an informal sector that is essentially deemed unbankable. And those are going to be real challenges as we think about how do we make sure this material is collected in the right way and makes its way back to the supply chains and the manufacturers. And our belief is that the key is it it has to have value. Um, that's why people collect it today. So what happens to the the trash pickers of today? Uh, are they are you factoring them into that into uh, sort of the design of the kinds of investments you want to make? Absolutely. I mean, the, the collection systems that will work in countries like Indonesia and India will not look like the collection systems of the U.S. or Europe. It is going to leverage the these essentially entrepreneurs. We call them waste pickers or the informal sector. But these are people who run a business, and that's their livelihood, and that needs to be respected. The, the one other sort of point I'd make is, you know, why catalytic capital is, is so needed in this particular case. Um, why we think the closed-loop fund model or the closed-loop model can apply here. It's that as we looked at the investment situation and why people weren't investing in these types of solutions in the sector in the region, what we found was a few key challenges or, or gaps. One is that there was a lack of track record. People hadn't been making money in this space as investors. Um, the second is that there's a, a lack of pipeline. Um, you want to see lots and lots of opportunities to invest, and there, there aren't enough. And then the third piece is that there's um, not trusted investment partners who have deep experience in this space. You're lucky if you can find an investor who's done a deal, let alone dozens of deals. And so that's really why we feel creating an investment vehicle in this space is so critical, so that we can prove there is a track record and demonstrate that track record, um, bring in co-investors to get more experience, and then build ourselves as a, as a trusted investment partner. So lots of challenges here. What, what I really liked about this, other than the fact that this is an innovative project that is much needed and, and hopefully can be game-changing uh, in, in a part of the world that is responsible for most of the plastic waste that goes into oceans, is just the optimism uh, the, that exists here with uh, Circulate Capital. Um, I talked to, to Rob Kaplan about this, and you know he said, I feel like this is solvable. 
and he told me, he, he said, when you talk about many other environmental issues, there's a political divide you have to overcome. In this case, we're all aligned. And he finally finished by saying, nobody is for plastic waste in the oceans, right? Right. We're going to stick with the topic of oceans and plastics for a little while longer. There's a boat plying the Pacific Ocean, a group of women who are doing research on the impact of plastics uh, on the health of people and the oceans. And our very own Shauna Rappaport is here to tell us about it. Hey, Shauna. Hi, Joel. So uh, tell us about it. What is this boat? Who's on it? And what are they doing? Well, I was very excited when the opportunity came across my desk to connect with uh, renowned British skipper Emily Penn. She is not only an ocean activist and skipper, she's also an artist and really working to mobilize a movement of women at, at the intersection of adventure and ocean protection. So they have been on a journey over 3,000 nautical miles. They're on this 72-foot research vessel called the Sea Dragon. Um, they've just made basically made the halfway point mark. They spent the last bit of time out at the Great Pacific Garbage Patch or the Pacific Gyre, really looking at the impacts of microplastics and ocean plastics in general, as you said, both on ocean health, but also on human health and particularly women's health. And you had a chance to talk to, uh, is it the skipper? Tell us about that. Well, I'll let you hear for yourself a, a, a snippet from our conversation. I'd say one of the most interesting things that, that at least surprised me was the, the focus on, on women's health in particular. So they're doing cutting edge research. They've got um, support from the UN Environment Clean Seas Initiative. I had a chance to connect with Emily Penn, the lead skipper. Here's what she had to say. All right, Emily, so let's set the stage. You're in the midst of a major expedition to the Great Pacific Garbage, garbage Patch. Where are you now? Where are you coming from? And, and what's your next stop along, along the journey? Yeah, so we've actually just arrived in Vancouver, having spent three weeks at sea crossing the North Pacific Ocean from Hawaii. Um, and so we have gone through this area, as you mentioned, this Great Pacific Garbage Patch, or what we also call the North Pacific Gyre, uh, which is this accumulation zone where so much of our plastic ends up due to the ocean currents. And where are you headed from here? Uh, so we're about to set off this weekend on the second leg of the voyage from Vancouver, around Vancouver Island to Seattle. So the first leg of our mission was all about trying to better understand what was going on in the center of this gyre, this accumulation zone. Um, and the second part of the voyage that we're about to set off on is looking much more at the coastal implications of the plastic. Um, so along the way on both voyages, we're doing a lot of scientific work um, where we're collecting samples. Um, both from the surface of the water, um, the seabed, the air, and um, and also looking at some of the toxics uh, that are in our ocean. Um, so it'll change slightly during this next leg as we now start to also explore how a lot of the plastic that's ending up in this gyre is then also impacting the coastline here of British Columbia. Talk a little bit about, at a higher level, Expedition North Pacific. What's the, what's the goal of the expedition? What, what are you really hoping will happen as a result? 
X Expedition, we basically started in 2014. Um, the voyages, uh, which we've now just completed our 10th, are all women expeditions where we are sailing uh, with a group of women from all over the world, different nationalities, but also different skills to go and explore plastic pollution and also the toxic chemical pollution that's in our oceans. Um, we're looking at how much plastic is out there, but also what impact it's having on both the marine life and also us, um, our bodies, chemically as well. The reason why, why we decided to have an all-women crew, um, the, the more I was learning about the potential toxic implications of having these chemicals, persistent organic pollutants, we call them. Um, so they are pesticides, flame retardants uh, that are in our ocean. And um, we're finding that we also have them inside our bodies. Uh, and for us girls, uh, a lot of those chemicals, they act as endocrine disruptors, they mimic hormones. And so for us girls, having them inside us during pregnancy and, and the potential to pass them on to our children is a very big deal. Hence, we wanted to tackle this women's health issue with an amazing all-women crew. Yes, and to be clear, that's EXXpedition North Pacific. I was That's perfect. I was going to ask, you know, what, what have you discovered so far? And that, that was certainly a bit of a, a, a window of insight. You know, how does, how does that compare to what you expected? Have there been any surprises along the way so far? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest surprise on this trip so far has just been the sheer amount of plastic that we've seen. So I mentioned it's our 10th voyage that we've completed and the samples that we pulled out of the water on this trip were higher than anything to date, um, which is pretty scary because we're seeing a huge increase in awareness about the issue. And we feel like on land, we're all starting to do things. You know, we're getting really good at taking our reusable plastic bags to, to the shops and using our reusable water bottles. But actually, when it comes to seeing what's happening out there at sea, there's still an increase in the pollution that's finding its way there. Well, that's a perfect transition to my next question because, you know, the Green Biz audience is made up of, you know, executives primarily from the private sector, large companies, startups, and also progressive governments. What's, what's the message you'd like to impart to our mainstream audience? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things we realized from being at sea is mostly how small these fragments of plastic are. So uh, every sort of 10 seconds passing the boat, we're seeing uh, something big, like a bottle or a container, a bucket, a, a washing basket, a cigarette lighter, you know, some sort of recognizable object. But then when we put the trawl through the water, we pull up 500 fragments of plastic. And more and more, we realize that we trying to clean up our ocean when there's trillions of fragments over this very vast remote area uh, it seems like a really hard place to start and so the main message is we need to be solving this on land we need to be working as far upstream as we possibly can um, so by that we're talking about both the behavior and actions of, of you and I as individuals and um, but really we're also talking about what is industry's role here? How can we redesign our products? Um, how can we redesign our systems in society? And, and how can we legislate those both to incentivize industry to do it in the first place and also so that we can then sustain that um, long term? 
So, Shauna, this is really interesting. I get that there's an environmental mission here, but is there maybe a personal mission in here, too? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's certainly the the obvious uh, vision and mission guiding this this adventure. You know, at, at its heart, it's about raising awareness about the devastating impacts of single-use plastic. It's certainly about championing and contributing to innovative scientific research that really helps to tackle that crisis. But there's also a really unique piece of this. I mean, the expedition, North Pacific, it, it, it's actually the ex-expedition, and it, it, it's at its at its heart, I think, about celebrating women in science and and leadership and adventure and really creating a community of female change makers who are inspiring other women globally to really tackle this problem. And as you can see, I did a Q&A that we're running on greenbiz.com today. And um, my last question to Emily about her personal story, you know, it became clear that it was direct experience that she had out on the ocean, falling in love with the water that incented her to want to protect it when she was younger. And so I think she's really wanting to create the opportunity um, to give other women um, the same chance, particularly at this um, planet and ocean critical time. Shauna Rappaport is our Director of Strategic Programs at GreenBiz. Thanks, Shauna. Thanks, Joel. As the world's top ticket-selling concert promoter, Live Nation has the opportunity to make a huge impact with its waste reduction measures. This season, the company has announced a series of initiatives at its U.S. venues, many of them focused on dramatically reducing the use of plastics. Here to discuss some of those programs is Lucy August-Perna, and she's Manager of Venue Sustainability for U.S. Concerts at Live Nation. Lucy, welcome to Green Biz 350. Thanks. Good to be here. So first, walk us through some of the newer strategies you've adopted and the rationale behind them. Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, this year we really put a stake in the ground around our materials use and the waste we're generating. And so we have committed to ourselves that we are striving to achieve zero waste in at least 20 of our U.S. venues by 2020. To really tackle this, uh, you know, we had to look beyond the trash can, I like to say, to the, the bigger picture. So, taking a hard look at, you know, the materials we're bringing into our venues, what's going on with those materials, you know, inside, and then finally where are the materials going once they leave our venues. So, you know, we've implemented policies and programs to address each of those areas, and, and that's kind of where we feel will be most successful is really looking at that holistic approach. For example, uh, you know, started a compost collection um, at some of our venues this year, um, and for that to be successful, you know, a couple things have to happen, have to get really disciplined about only sourcing compostable food service ware. So switching from any type of, uh, you know, plastic plate, for example, to compostable, making it really easy for the fans to just kind of put their leftover food scraps with the compostable plate in the right bin. But then also, you know, at the end of that is making sure we're giving our compost partners, you know, really good materials that they can turn into you know, nice soil. So we've hired people to help sort through those compostables at the end of the night to assure that uh, there wouldn't be contamination when we do hand it off. Also looking at things like replacing single use with reusables. We started a reusable pint cup program to try to reduce the number of uh, single use cups. You know, our fans love to drink 
drink beer. So that's an opportunity for them to to participate by simply refilling one cup. You've got a lot of attention for the plastic straws. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. people are talking about straws. So what are you doing there? Yeah. So um, this past April, we announced that we are eliminating plastic straws from um, at all of our U.S. amphitheaters, um, and we've adopted a paper straw by request only. Um, and honestly, that came as a result of a partnership we did last year um, with Jack Johnson and nonprofit Reverb. Um, you know, Jack Johnson basically said, "Hey, we're playing your venue." Um, and what we'd love for you to, you know, do for us um, and work with us on is reducing plastic use. And one of those things was eliminating plastic straws. So we were able to pilot it at those shows last year and sort of quickly saw that it was quite simple um, to execute. And therefore, when we kind of came into this season, we said, well, why can't we just do that at all of our venues? Right. Um, so we did. And it's been it's been great so far. So do do particular artists like kick in ideas? I mean, as you, as you develop your concert series, it's like that. Is that common for someone to say, "Hey, you know, we want to do this with our 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 series," you know, or can't or or on the flip side, is it possible for you to get artists to help you support certain ideas? Yeah, so a little bit of both, but I would say largely, you know, I give our artists a lot of credit with the inspiration behind a lot of the things that we've started implementing. So just mentioned, you know, Jack Johnson with the plastic straws. They also inspired our reusable pint cup program. So if you've been to a Jack show, you know, they sell their own branded uh, reusable pint cup and the fans just love it. Another thing is for several years now, a lot of touring artists have started actually bringing their own water refill stations out on the road with them because, you know, it was really important for them that their fans had that option at their show um, and the fans just, you know, love them for it. So, you know, that's inspired uh, some of what we've done this year as well. So, yeah, I would say artists really, you know, we, we feel like, you know, they're our clients and we serve them. And when we have an opportunity to, to, to put together a program like that, especially when it, you know, is a mutually sustainable goal, then uh, it's a lot of fun. And again, it gives us an opportunity to sort of pilot it first before maybe scaling it to, to more of our venues. Now, you just mentioned water refill, and I, I do see that you're now putting a, in place a relationship with Flow Water. They have re- refill stations. So can you talk us through that? 21 venues, I guess, you're, you're focusing on? I mean, it's probably the same ones that you're, that you're really focused on um, getting to the zero waste goal. But, you know, what is what is the idea behind that relationship? Yeah, um, you know, there's, there's a few reasons behind uh, that decision. So, you know, as I said, the artists have been doing it for a while. So we've kind of seen an action and seen that the fans love it. You know, so really we see it as a way to better serve our fans. We already allow fans to bring in a reusable water bottle. So this now allows us to, to close the loop on that experience by being able to provide a you know, an actual good option for them when they get to the show to refill those bottles. Our amphitheaters are outdoors, so you can imagine it gets really hot in the summer. So I think easy access to clean, cold water is, you know, almost even just a health issue. So making sure that our fans, you know, can stay hydrated throughout the night. And then, of course, you know, for our employees, it's great. We try to encourage them to bring a reusable water bottle to work. And again, now they have this great option, refill and be able to stay hydrated throughout the night while they're working, which is really important, you know, uh, for their um, health and wellness. 
So, so yeah, flow water, you know, it, it kind of became a natural fit. Funny, I've worked with several water refill vendors over the years, and I will say the technology for portable water refill stations has evolved dramatically since I first started in this space over 10 years ago. So I'm, I'm thrilled that there's, you know, flow waters out there now. So it's been really great to be able to actually have really good options for our venues. You know, there's several vendors that have serviced festivals and they do a great job, um, more of sort of the one-off style event. So there's, you know, really good products on the market for, for that type of event. But we really wanted something that would feel more permanent, you know, but, but also provide us the flexibility given, you know, the different types of shows we cater to. So I think Flow Water really met that need. So I have two more quick questions for you. The first is just I'm curious, why 20-ish? Why uh, you've got more than a hundred venues, I think, around the United States. So what's what's so significant about these twenty that you're starting with? So as far as zero waste goes, as I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, so zero waste is is technically defined as, you know, ninety percent or more of your waste is diverted from landfill. It also, of course, has to do with the products you're sourcing and really thinking about, you know, the use of the product in mind. So we're, we're looking at those things. But in order to get to 90%, we've got to make sure that we have, you know, a, a vendor or a partner who can take those materials from us when we're done with them. So recycling is for the most part straightforward, other than some recent complications, you know, around the China sword policy. But and then composting is sort of the next big thing we're tackling. And right now, you know, the compost infrastructure, while getting a lot better, is unfortunately, you know, there's not a facility in every location where our venues operate that can right now accept our compostable service where our, you know, and our, our food scraps. So, so 20 for right now, because we confidently feel like we've got about 20 locations where we do have a solid compost partner. And again, we want to make sure we're keeping them happy so they stay in business and really get, you know, a good, you know, material stream from us. And we hope that will increase. And so our number of 20 venues will also increase as we identify new partners. But that's really the main challenge right now as far as not being able to, you know, really say we want to go zero waste system wide. So that's the first part of the question. And really the second part regarding flow water is, um, you know, we did trial them last year at one of our venues down near San Diego. It went well. But before we do anything system-wide, you know, we just want to make sure we get to kind of work out the kinks first. You know, this is a pretty large purchase of these units, and we're testing them in lots of different environments, you know, hot, humid, dry desert. So we just want to make sure that everything goes well. You know, the goal would be to continue to expand to more venues um, next year. You know, when you think about these things that you're doing, many of them are about behaviors, so yeah. you've got both fans, you've got to change the behavior of both fans and, and of course, your employees, your, your associates. So what are you doing um, and what are you successfully doing? You know, what are the most effective ways to help get everyone on board with these, with these goals? As far as fans go, I think it's as simple as right now, consistent and frequent communication, constant reinforcement. We rolled out this brand new campaign this year called Sustainability Rocks. And, you know, it's incorporated into every aspect of what we call the fan journey. So communication before the show, during the show, after the show. So without beating them over the head over, you know, with it, we just want to make sure that they're aware of what's going on. And, you know, we really rely on messaging that's 
kind of based off of best practices and behavior change, keeping it positive, simple, relatable, so that our fans really feel like it's it's easy or and as convenient to participate. So that's something we're working on for our fans and you know we'll continue to evolve. For our employees, super important, yeah, because they are a huge piece of, of our success. So I think it's it's education for sure. And then that's sort of coupled with, you know, their involvement and, you know, throwing in some rewards and incentives are always helpful. But as far as education goes, you know, we want to make sure they all understand, you know, what we're doing and why it's important, first and foremost, uh, super, you know, super key that they understand kind of why we're doing this. So all venue staff now go through a zero waste e-learning course, for example, prior to the start of the season. So they, they come in sort of knowing the language and, and what to expect um, that season and, and how they can participate. I'd say one of the things that's been really successful for us this year is, so, so first we, we created a brand new role to support these efforts. It's called the Venue Sustainability Coordinator. Um, we're trialing it at uh, 14 amphitheaters this year so far to great success. You know, they really act as our champions on site, overseeing the work, but also the ones to work alongside our staff to increase buy-in and participation. And one thing that we've done is this, this coordinator leads, you know, a post-show sort of materials, as I explained earlier. And we ask that all venue staff participate in one of our zero waste sorts at least once and find that once they do, their entire mind shifts, mindset shifts regarding waste at the venue, right? They see it, they touch it, uh, they see what happens to it when it leaves, they learn about compost and what composting is and that our, you know, our beer cups are made from plants and they can be turned into soil. And so that whole world kind of opens up to them when they come back and they sort and they have a chance to talk with our coordinator about it. And uh, we've had several of them say they've made changes in their personal life as a result of that experience. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As usual, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And there you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode while you're there, check out a link to our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can always hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. And once again, happy birthday to GreenBiz editorial director Heather Clancy. We'll be back next week with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.